We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. Just one more thing. Hey now. Oh boy. Holy mechanical armies. Mom always liked you best. Oh, she did. <laughs> you wanted to be one word. What is the other word? One of these days. Are we having fun yet? It's gonna be legend. Wait for it. Now, you might very well think that. But of course, I couldn't possibly comment. 30 Helens agree. Oh, come on! Missed it by that much. Good evening. Hello, and welcome to the Televerse, Sound on Sight's TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsik, and I'm joined, as ever, by Simon Howell. Simon, the podcast gods hate us this week. Uh, how, how about the everything else gods? How's it going? How do you know that it's not just the one true god of Christ that hates us? <laughs> well, all I know is that everything else has been relatively smooth sailing with my Comic-Con, you know, preparations and, and planning and everything. But it's we, if there are any audio quality issues this week, we apologize here at the top of the show. It's It's been an interesting recording experience for this podcast, but we're getting it out. We're getting it to you guys, hopefully on Tuesday. And... Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> yep. We heard from a bunch of you guys this week, um, and thank you so much, as ever. We got tweets from Ken and Blaine with music suggestions for last week's podcast. Thank you guys very much. That was very helpful. Heard from my Vogon Poetry, which is Carl, who loves Family Tree, really loved it fit his quirk quota, and he is looking forward to hearing thoughts about Almost Human from comic-con because he's a he's a fringe guy also he emailed in with uh answers to the questions last week so he says he would like to hear about the women who kick kick ass panel orphan black haven and almost human um because you know he has good taste clearly and he wants to know as oh as for shows that went south quickly heroes and i gotta yeah i gotta give him that i would concur after the first season it was just not goodness it was just you know i kept sticking around for brian fuller to come back because i kept promising him and his episodes were always good and this is as good a time as i need to mention that i was at my parents house this weekend and somebody some enterprising soul lent them a copy of heroes season one i'm sure they haven't opened it and if they ever will they're they're doomed even <laughs> oh god they're they're going to hate that i get even the good parts trust me they're going to hate it so whoever lent it to them does not get my parents at all whoever you were <laughs> um he wants to know oh he liked under the dome as a guilty pleasure or campy kind of b-movie show and wants to know if feedback for old shows is cool because he's kind of going through the back catalog now and yes feedback for anything is good F- feedback for Old shows, current shows, potential future shows, mm-hmm. spinoffs that don't exist yet, whatever. We yeah. like it all. We like it all. Uh, he wants to know if we watch shows like Orphan Black, if when we watch shows like that, we're trying to figure out the mythology or we're just kind of riding along. You know, so like shows like Lost, other shows where there's like a mystery or an overarching, you know, kind of conspiracy issue to be solved. That's actually a good question for our our DVD shelf this week, which we're going to be talking with Les Chapel from This Was Television and the AV Club about Rubicon. So do you try to figure out the mythology as you go? You know, usually I find I'm only thinking about the mythology a lot if I'm if the show is boring me. Like if the if the activity of watching it isn't engaging me enough on a on a weekly basis or however often the show airs when it's airing. That usually means that 
you know, if if I'm really thinking about where is this going, what's the ultimate endpoint, usually that means it's not engaging me all that much on a week to week basis, w- with rare exceptions. Uh, but I, th- I think a show like we 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 talk about Venture Brothers every week, which I mean, you most of the mythology of that show must be going totally over your head, but it, yes. it's but it's still <laughs> completely fun and hilarious to watch, even if you don't get it. So I I think that. You know, under the I think if if I were watching under the we I didn't watch Under the Dome this week because it was hilariously awful last week. I assume it was the same this week. I didn't at least I didn't hear any different. And uh, I think if I was still watching Under the Dome, I would be constantly thinking, "Where's the dome coming from? What's the endpoint?" Because I'm otherwise I'd be so fixated on why is this show so howlingly awful right now. <laughs> I, I tend to have more fun kind of playing along with with the mythology or trying to like piece things together, especially over the course of a week, maybe talking with other TV fans. Certainly it's something I used to do a lot more of before I had all this other (laughs) podcast stuff to fill my, my TV time or my, my, what would have been my conspiracy theory time. Um, Now I tend to just kind of go with it more. And then every now and again, I get a brilliant idea, which is usually wrong. (laughs) But, but, But I do think that when it comes to speculation, like I'm more a fan of people, People making up like totally insane theories that I know aren't true mm-hmm. that are usually that I know are probably going to be more fun than whatever the showrunners are actually thinking of. That's always fun. That's my favorite form of speculation. And the other question you have for us is a medium version of an all time great show better or worse than a medium show just starting out. So would you rather see, for example, his example was season four of Arrested Development or the first season of 1600 Pen? Promising, but not great. Which would you rather see? Huh. That's an interesting question. It is. It's a good question, sir. W- well, it depends. Like, in the case of something like 1600 Pan, like, it seems to me that the the ideal comparison is the first season of something that you know turns out to be fantastic. And I don't think we know that about 1600 Pen. Mm-hmm. Well, it got canceled, um, so. It, and, yeah, we can't. It's know. not going to have a chance to grow, yeah. Right, um... So yeah, it, it, are we talking about a show that we know doesn't have a future? Because to me, that that there's a big difference between a show that will go forward but doesn't hasn't quite found its footing yet, or something like that comes out relatively fully formed, like you know Rubicon or Terriers or whatever, and then has no future. So I'm it's sort of a cop out answer, I suppose. But okay, well let's say you it gets an early pickup from HBO or something. Totally Episode two pickup, but it's not there. It's it's a middling show. Would you rather watch that or would you rather watch a less good epi- a season of a, a show that has had greatness before? You know, it's sort of an unfashionable answer, but I think I'm going to go with the faded greatness answer because yeah, me too. At, at, le- at, at that point, I usually I can still take residual pleasure from characters and settings that I have an attachment to that you know that i've formed over the previous three seasons that were awesome or two seasons or one season whereas new to middling when it's happening you don't necessarily know that it's going to get a whole lot better a lot of shows you know that you and i talk about we think oh this has great potential and then it never lives up to it at all and that's depressing mm-hmm. so over time you, you you stop having that that like giddy childlike hope that oh i can't wait till this gets awesome and then you, you sort of just graduate to oh this will never be awesome because that's what <laughs> happens. Beaten that, down. <laughs> that's and that's adulthood, people. Uh, yeah, I would. It, it would. It would be a different answer if it was a really good show, promising new shows, like a really promising 
you know, new new network or, or, or cable show. But if it's just a middling show, I, yeah, I, I usually have a stronger connection with the characters. And so even if the show isn't great, like those who listen to our season four Arrested development discussion know I wasn't a huge fan of season four. And yet certain, you know, elements of that season have become part of my daily vernacular. So yeah. even though I wasn't a big fan of it, my affinity for the characters in the world still let because then you have it become something that I think I've said at least five times a week since the, since I first saw it. Right. Okay. Well, good questions. Thank you very much, Carl. Also, we heard from Swedge who who enjoyed our Breaking Bad uh, season five discussion. So we talked about that and antiheroes, specifically Mad Men and Don versus Breaking Bad and Walt. It was a lot of fun. Um, and both of you guys said that you had left us uh, iTunes reviews, and thank you very much. They haven't seemed to show up yet. Uh, unless one of them was one of the reviews that I read about last week that I read off last week. So if you would check iTunes, sometimes it, iTunes eats reviews. <laughs> I know that Keith uh, tried to leave a review for us a couple times before it stuck. So just I would say if you know if you want to and you have some time, go ahead and, and check and make sure that it did go through. And if it did and it's in like a different country or something, please let us know because we would love to read it and uh, read it out. And thank you again for, for listening to the show and kind of joining the discussion and all of that. So thank you very much. Talked about Murica with uh, David, Steph, and Tyler to be continued at Comic-Con. Uh, and... Yeah, to be continued at Comic-Con. Also talked Comic-Con with Jason, Kyle, David, Steph, Tyler, and Carl. One season shows that should be on DVD as opposed to The Cape, which currently is. Um, Shannon votes for Terriers. I went Cupid. Blaine votes for Static Shock. Sir, what one season show should be on DVD instead of The Cape? Oh, I, I have to second the Terriers vote because it's one of my favorite uh, one-offs. Although Rubicon's a good answer, too. Mm-hmm. Did that ever get a DVD release? I don't think so. Not not yet, at least. I don't know. We'll, oh, we'll... If, if not yet, never. <laughs> um, Amanda posed a very interesting thought. She wants, said she wants to read the article about the fact that good TV doesn't need to rely on a central romance. And I told her she should just write it because I would like to read that. But you guys had a little discussion of that. That was really, really interesting, I thought. Well, it, it it did make make me make me think like out of all my favorite shows ever, how many of them actually have a central romance? Deadwood doesn't, mm -hmm. not really. There the are Wire does significant there are romances, romances, but non-central. It's not like you take away that romance and it's yeah, a different show. Yeah, it's not show. the Fulcrum. Like, yeah, The Wire has some romance here and there, but not. It's not a driving point. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, Twin Peaks has. I, you know, you can't say that any of the relationships there are really central unless you count the town's relationship to uh, Laura Palmer. Uh, you know, I can't really think of of like one of my favorite shows that rests, you know, at, on as a central point mm -hmm. on a romantic relationship other than maybe other than Friday Night Lights. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it It is a romance. I guess they are romantic, but it's not a pursuit of a relationship. It's depicting a relationship right so, which seems which seems different yeah it, yeah it does totally it thing. does um i would say buffy does have that but it has it for a few seasons and not for the rest of the show and it sort of goes from that buffy angel central epic romance in season two and three to being more of just family in in and friendship in the other season so that's interesting you know it's, i think it's a very good point amanda and i still think you should you should write it up because I, I would like to read it otherwise eventually i'm going to steal the idea because it's an awesome one so thank you <laughs> right yeah it's it's very difficult to think of a show that has a romantic main angle where it isn't 
uh, basically a huge crutch by the end. I think Pushing Daisies managed it pretty well for two seasons. Yep. Who knows if it would have worked beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. Let us know what you think. Randy and Ellen uh, talked a little Ben and Kate. Oh, I'm going to miss that show. And Mario Mario uh, loved the outtake at the end of last week. Oh, man, Mario. There was so much more to go with that one. But oh, God, there ha- we actually, we, we, the previous night we recorded an entire, uh, almost the entire segment the previous night with, with longer descriptions of each one. And it was over an hour long. Yeah. And it was, we weren't even through the whole thing. We saw, yeah, we were just delirious by the end. We got yeah. to the next morning and thought we have to do that over except not <laughs> that long. So yeah, there's, yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Mario. We enjoyed it as well. Yeah. We didn't enjoy recording it, but we enjoyed have, be, finishing it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, let's mention quickly. We have, of course, uh, Sound on Sight is is where this will be posted. We are the one of the TV podcasts over there, and we have our top ten so far for 2013 list, which is you know when the two of us came up with, and we also did a best of the rest, so best episodes of shows that did not make our top ten of 2013 so far. Which, by the way, is a concept that some people still don't get. So. They still, not everyone gets it. But I'm very proud of our list. I think they are very interesting, and I think you guys should check them out. I think it's, I think it's an excellent list, and frankly, the top ten series, I, I anticipate that list is only going to be about seventy percent different by the end of the year. We'll see. There's, I think there's some contenders that we'll be talking about. Uh, later in the year but we'll we'll, we'll see we'll see <laughs> and of course i will be covering uh san diego comic-con as we talked about last week a lot and we will talk about next week a lot um for sound on site and there's going to be a meetup that i'll be at which is the battleship retention criterion cast and warner archive meetup because we don't have enough of a listener base to have our own meetup um so I'll, i'm gonna be picking back piggybacking off of them and those guys are of course fantastic so if you're going to be at comic-con um go to the the Battleship Retention Warner Archive and Criterion Cast Meetup Thursday night, 8 to 10 at Dublin Square Pub on 4th Street. So I will be there. It was awesome last week. Last year, it'll be awesome this year. Hopefully, I'll get to see some of you guys down, down in sunny California. And extra incentive, I won't be there to rain on your geek parade. <laughs> Yeah, a little little different experience, I would imagine, uh, chilling with, with Simon at Comic-Con. Just different experience than chilling with me at Comic-Con. But let's get into our week in TV, and we're going to kick things off with the comedies. Uh. Greetings, Brock Samson. Apologies. I regret to report my date is not going well. Conversation strained. Rapport wanting. Never mind about that. We're aborting. Where's Vendata? He ditched me for his co-worker. Oh, don't point. Well, I just wanted to say hello. I do not want to leave. My friend waited. Don't look now, Vendata, but your so-called friend looks like he found himself another friend. That's Yeti Mummies. Oddly familiar. 20 bucks says Galacticon. Gets him down to the bathroom in less than five minutes. Guys into bears. This week in comedies, we have the pilot for Drunk History, Washington, D.C. We have the premiere of The Jesselnik Offensive, The Venture Brothers, Bot Seek Spot, and Wilfred Shame. Which of these would you like to talk about first, sir? Well, it was my idea to talk about The Jesselnik Offensive, so I guess we should start there. Uh, the I watched some of the first season. I actually, I, I've heard uh, quite a bit of Jesselnik stand-up, and I do like him as a stand-up as a... As a TV personality, he's sort of a problematic entity because he, uh, I mean, he is smugness personified. He knows it. 
He knows precisely what he's doing. He knows precisely how to get under people's skin, and that's why it's called the Jeselnik Offensive. Everything about the show is precisely designed to provoke a certain effect. But the thing that's tricky about the show is that it seems to, um, and sometimes it does very, very well, sort of lampoon and satirize the, you know, the, the generation of teenagers and slightly younger and slightly older people who are now, who have now grown up on what, four seasons of Tosh.0, five seasons. How long has that guy been around already? I have no um, idea. Too long. And the, the, the show openly, openly mocks that kind of humor while also wallowing in it. And I, I kind of, the, the, the show feels like this bizarre constant double dare. And I'm never sure whether to laugh or, to point an accusatory finger at myself for laughing or sometimes just not finding it funny at all. So it, I don't know. I, I find the show strangely compelling, even though I, I did think that this, this second season premiere, despite the appearance of Amy Schumer, who we love, uh, wasn't the show at its best. Yeah. I hadn't seen season one at all. And I just, all I knew about Jocelyn was that he's that guy that made a name for himself on, on roasts being you know the the most offensive or the you know the the one who will go the furthest and that's certainly a way to to make a name for yourself in comedy there's a lot of people who have managed to break through sort of to a more mainstream audience in that way the thing is with you know and and we've been pleasantly surprised by inside amy schumer and some of the other comedies that they have going on over on comedy central right now the the thing is with this one I just wasn't laughing. I didn't think it was funny. And I just wanted to punch him in his smug face. And I know <laughs> that isn't the entire point. I know that's, you know, that it's a choice and it's not, he's put, playing a character and everything. You know, I, I, I completely understand. And it's the desired result. But the thing is, it wasn't funny for me. I wasn't laughing. I might have laughed once or twice at some of the <laughs> some of the jokes about uh, removing the obstacle for for men in dating, which you know permission. Uh, so some some right. of those uh, <laughs> kind of jokes worked for me a little bit better. But I don't know. I'm I I'm happy to to hear you know. I'm happy to, to to listen to people tell rape jokes, to tell cancer jokes, to tell Hitler jokes, as long as they're funny and you're not making the victim the the punchline of the joke. Then I'm I'm right. all for it. And uh, so so I don't know that I was uh, overly offended by it. I just wasn't laughing. And so oh, and and, and to be clear, ninety percent of the Justin Lake offensive is making the victim the joke. There was an yeah. entire dance routine in season one. It was a shark party based around the fact that there had finally been a fatal shark attack that year. Every, there was literally like scantily clad women showing up in shark costumes. Everybody had a dance. And at, and at the end of it, the score was revealed to be sharks, one humans, a billion. <laughs> and which was, it was like, it was an almost transcendent moment because you couldn't, it was almost impossible to not find it at least amusing. While it was also simultaneously impossible to not find it completely and utterly offensive. That was like, I don't think the, it, the show literally j- like jumped the shark in every possible <laughs> sense at that moment. And I think that's, that's ideally what the show does. I, I think Jeselnik is a smart guy. Some of his punchline writers, I think, need a little bit of works. Like, especially the, in the monologue when he's just telling isolated jokes, I don't think that's a format that works for him. I think the, 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 the interview skit with, with, the, uh, with the mortician is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. It would be funnier if he wasn't constantly breaking out into chuckles. I think it would work better sort of more straight-faced. Yeah, but um, I don't know. I, I have I have a sick kind of admiration for what he does because I do think that he's the. I think he knows that he's presenting the humor that the Twitter generation deserves, whether or not they take it correctly. 
I don't know. I I I I admire the show even though even while I recognized it is horribly flawed. Well, and the other thing is that comedy is incredibly personal and incredibly specific most of the time. The best comedy usually is. And so there are very likely many people who enjoy the show, who think it's incredibly well-written and really get a kick out of it every week. It's just not for me. It's not a Kate yeah. show. No, no. I, and I, I, I suggested it, and then I watched this premiere and thought, oh, God, what have I done? Uh, but I will say <laughs> that I will say that you will get the total scope of modern comedy. I do believe this. If you watch an ep- this most recent episode of the Justin Lake Offensive and then go and watch the... Um, the uh jim norton lindy west interview on um totally biased with w kamau bell it's the 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 full interviews on youtube if you go if, if you, those two things totally balance each other out in like a cosmic sense so Interesting. If, 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 if you're offended by just like go watch that and it'll it'll balance your chi and both of them involve jim norton so it's like an, it's perfect in another way yeah no i i also enjoy jim norton uh, i know that you know, the one he gets a kick out of this kind of a lot of this kind of humor as well. At least the the stand up I've seen from him tends towards the poking the audience variety. Um, so you know, I I'm very interested now to 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 see that. I'll check it out. Yeah, J- J- Jim Norton's an interesting case because he takes often he takes positions that I often wouldn't defend, but he tends to be fairly good at defending them. Yeah, well, I mean, if it's easy to defend, then where's the, where's the challenge, right? Yes. But let's move on to Drunk History, uh, which was started out its life as a Funny or Die short and now has become a Comedy Central show. Sir, thoughts? Ah, it was better as Funny or Die, wasn't it? I mean, the this is a concept designed for a three to seven minute sketch at best. And I, 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 I mean, I thanked the heavens that it wasn't a 20. Well, like in the the show itself is subdivided into was it just three segments yeah. which thank goodness for that but something about the heightened production values kind of ruins it for me like it's not all that heightened but it's a little heightened it's a little slicker it's a little bit more cinematic which to me kind of like the when you t- when you take away the sheer cheapness of it it kind of ruins some of the some of the flair like i appreciate that like the, the cast is actually kind of amazing if you think of, if you actually stop to think about it you know jack black turns up and Nathan Fielder as Bob Woodward, which is inspired casting, uh, if you're going to, you know, be incestuous in a comedy central sort of way. But I don't know. I uh, I wasn't laughing. I, I yeah, that that's really what it comes down to. I wasn't laughing as much as I should be, and I and and I wasn't laughing as much as I did at the original sketches, which means something got lost in translation. The thing for me with Drunk History is that well, and and I did laugh. At first, I was worried I was not going to laugh once watching it, but I did. I laughed a couple times, and. The thing is, is that at least for me, drunk people aren't funny most of the time. The kind of drunk people they're showing in this, and I don't know if they actually have had anything to drink or if they're just written to be drunk. But the the story within, you know, that the, that the the various comedians are telling. When we flashed to that, I was way more likely to be entertained, especially when it broke the fourth wall or you hear, you know, the, you have them saying things that don't make sense. And especially the performances of the various actors. I really <laughs> like Odin Kirk as Nixon and Adam Scott as uh, as Wilkes Booth. And uh, yeah, I, th- I thought there was some, some some good stuff there. But everything whenever they ca- cut back to the person just being a drunk idiot I, that wasn't funny to me it was just kind of sad um and so it needs <laughs> to either be funnier or again maybe just that 
part of it is is not for me. I don't I don't know, but um, the notion of like half remembering a history lesson or a, like a little known historical event, I think is actually really interesting and really fun. But yeah, these all felt too long, and that's part of the the added runtime because then you have twenty two minutes for three stories, so you have like seven minutes. I feel like five for most of these would have been okay, and I certainly don't need you know the guy like crawling around on the floor. If you're not friend, like that can be entertaining if you know the person, but just watching some stranger that you don't have a pre-existing relationship with be like, I'm totally wasted, man. That That's not yeah, funny. It, Is it, that it, just me? It's it, No, it's a shallow comic. Well, you're right. I, I will say that as a Canadian, I got a kick out of, you know, get, getting these slightly, well, I mean, Woodward and Birdstein is not new to me, but I didn't know anything about John Wilkes Booth's brother. So that was kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Which, which I don't know if that's familiar to most Americans, but it certainly wasn't familiar to me. Well, and I think uh, there's a lot. Like I said, I did laugh. I, you know, I was laughing at it, and I especially appreciated the uh, the Wilkes, John Wilkes Booth and Edwin uh, Wilkes Booth uh, situation. I always th- find the the John Wilkes Booth thing fascinating because he was basic. It would basically be like George Clooney assassinates Obama. Like he was so hugely famous <laughs> that it was like ridiculous. So I always find that bit of history a little just even harder to believe when I contextualize it in a similar way Just, now. just so you know, if George Clooney ever does go after Obama in real life, the CIA is coming after you for predicting it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, so, so maybe it's just because that particular bit of history is more of interest to me and maybe I'm just overanalyzing everything because that's what I do and I'm killing it and I should just shut up. So <laughs> maybe it's time to move on. Um, but yeah, I think there's a seed there that's more interesting and overall... The, the fine, finished product didn't work as well for me as I was hoping it would. Um, but we should talk about Venture Brothers before we move on here. Bot Seeks Bot. We should. This, I mean, I, I feel like I say this every week, and probably I do, but I thought this was an exceptionally well-constructed episode of Venture Brothers in that it, it was amazing to me how it, it involves, like, the, the the ventures are almost not in it at all. I think the, the kids aren't in it, period. Rusty's in it for maybe three minutes. And you're you're relying almost entirely on second, third, seventh string characters, and it still <laughs> works. And it's because it, it happens to be just an exceptionally written farce. I mean, just the the gag alone of uh, of Rusty and Quizboy just falling into a ventriloquist act uh, <laughs> was, I mean, it was an amazing sight gag. And just just having the imagination to come up with that. And then animate it in a way that was convincing. I th- it, although, as it turns out, not that convincing, which was an even better twist. Yeah. You know, just the way the, the show com- compounds these ideas is just mind-boggling to me. I find myself having to re-watch episodes so I can catch all the gags I missed the first time. Yeah, it was another very well-written one. And I said at the beginning of the show that there are a couple of you know, shows that we're going to talk about that are making a strong... Uh, play for the top 10 at the end of the year and I think Venture Brothers is one of them they've just been so incredibly consistent I don't know what it would knock out of the top 10 for me (laughs) that's where it gets tough but you know this was another really fun episode and I'm sure a lot more of it would have worked for me um, or I would have laughed even more if I had all the previous seasons of of experience with these characters especially like at the very end I had no idea who those people I was like I'm sure that's gonna be one of those things where Simon says if you know who these characters are, it's hilarious, and I was laughing anyways. Yeah, so that's okay. That's Phantom Limb. He's Doctor the, the Doctor the Monarch's girlfriend's ex, who was the <laughs> previous, who was the big bad in like season two, 
And it was exactly, cool. exactly. Oh, so much, so much to unpack. You really need to go back and watch more seasons. Certainly, but, but um, it was still really funny, though. I was still laughing the yeah. whole way. I loved the the various outfits, Yeti Mummy, and I don't know. I just, just like you know, the Jesselnik offensive humor doesn't work for me. The Venture Brothers zany comedy really does. Yeah, I mean, Vendetta alone, or uh, <laughs> the, the the many ideas for the for the name for the helmet costume and. Uh, all the gags involving ghost robot and, and oh the robot date oh, the <laughs> robot date was so good it's not going well <laughs> strained conversation <laughs> yeah I've had dates like that oh uh, haven't um, we all everybody's had a date like that <laughs> well and even just like you know we had venture stein and now we have vendetta i mean dude i just i love i love the show <laughs> Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, th- this show is just killing it right now. There's really nothing more to say. If you're not watching Venture Brothers, again, even if, despite the fact that I, I, I've talked about how it has possibly the densest mythology of anything on TV, uh, much like Adventure Time, you don't need any of that to just have fun with it. And it's also, if you're not a fan of Adult Swim stuff in general because it's too stoned or too random, Venture Brothers is not like that at all. It's so elegantly constructed. I mean, it is also for stoners, but it's <laughs> it's, it's so it's so elaborately geeky in a way that the other shows aren't, and that it's so clearly a labor of so much love and so much effort. I mean, if you were to, to if you were to pause those nightclub scenes at any time and yeah. you were to look at all those all those villains populating the screen, like. I, I guarantee you Jackson Public and Doc Hammer will have a story for every single one of those characters. Mm-hmm. Guaranteed. And they've probably shown up at some point. And, I mean, Augustus St. Cloud really is in the running for best new character of the year, especially for a pre-existing show. It's just so much fun. And believe it or not, the, the, the show's been going so long and the show's established so many great characters that if you read comments from Venture Brothers uh, long-timers, they mostly hate St. Cloud. They mostly think he's a totally dull, uninteresting character. Because they're so invested in the in the other yeah. characters that are already percolating. <laughs> That's how deep that well goes. It's very clear for me. The winner is Venture Brothers. You? Yes. Yes, yeah. it is. Oh, man. Next week is the finale. Going to miss them. Going to miss and the it's Venture not Brothers. Even, and it's not even... Uh, I, I saw some hope that it was going to be an hour long. Not the case. And especially after the cliffhanger we got this week. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Damn, that, that was Whedon-worthy right there. That was good. Well, I mean, I kind of been expecting nothing... Just, like, brush it off, you know? Just no mention of it, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Let's take a break and come back and talk a little reality. The field was bright with clover. I saw the finish sign. The path of least resistance led to Hollywood and Vine. I tried to go the distance. But they just keep moving the line I left the other Phillies Back at the starting gate Was ready on my mark I got to set to hurry up and wait So talent and ambition Won me a chance to shine but 
this week in reality we have the finale of the American Baking Competition as well as So You Think You Can Dance. And I think what they're at top 16 at this point i think so at first the american baking competition because of course you did not watch that one i thought the the challenges that they had for the for the final episode were very interesting and well done it was unfortunate to see some of the people falter at the end it would have been nice if it was a little closer i will say i was watching this again with my sister we were having all of our baking nerdery it was it was a lot of fun but by, by the time we get to the very end, we're like, oh, God, if if he mentions how he's been humbled one more freaking time, if you have to keep talking about how now you're all humble, you're not really humble. And I don't really blame him for that. I blame the producers like poking him and saying, what have you learned? What have you learned? Talk to the camera and tell us what you've learned, you know, uh, which I'm sure that they do. I always have a hard time, you know, giving anybody too harsh a critique as a person for when they're on a reality show because you know that they're under very strange circumstances and that they've probably been spliced together to fit a particular narrative um so that i I blame that on the editing more than anything else but the final challenge looked really interesting and cool i thought it was nice that they brought all the people back and had the families like they tend to but it, it really felt uh it was very pleasant and this is something we talked about earlier in the year with Bunheads, with Ben and Kate, with some of these other shows that most of which have been canceled, honestly, it's Mm. nice to just have some pleasant television. And this is a good format. There's a lot of potential here. The ratings weren't great, so I would be a little surprised if it came back. But I do think there's a very good, very enjoyable, especially summer series to be had with this format. Um, So we'll see whether CBS commits to it for next year at all or if it's just, you know, one and done. And on that note of Pleasant TV, for the most part, at least, we had So You Think You Can Dance, the top 16. Shall we start with how they started this week, which was awesome? Yes. uh, This is, uh, you know, a way forward for all producers of reality shows. If your fans are complaining about something, don't just either ignore it or just double down and keep going. Maybe just change something and admit you screwed up, which is exactly what happened at the opening of this show. And they they all just said, It was glorious. Well... We pulled the boner and laughed about it and then changed it, which was uh, just so great to see. And it, it's it's nice to see that level of responsiveness. I, I mean, I guess they sort of have to have that because they're not necessarily it's not they're not like an American Idol level of popularity where they can just do whatever the hell they want and damn everyone. So I guess they have to be responsive. But still, it's nice to see. Yeah, definitely. When they started, just the way that they opened, um, the the opening number was 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 cool. wasn't as good as putting on the Ritz, but it was you but know better, better than, than last week. week. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Uh, it would have been way more effective if they had once they jumped off, they didn't come back, or they like had a costume change or something. I thought that was a missed opportunity. Anyways, um, but the way that they started out the show with, so we got some feedback from you guys. A little. That's just to say, put it lightly, a little bit of feedback, and just to to just address it, you you know, say we hear you, and it was like every review that I read was just dominated by hate for for their structure. So and there was nothing, and there was nothing um, bitter or mean spirited, no. or in in their response at all. They were like, "Map, we listen, we put, we you know, this this sucked, we won't do it again." Yeah, definitely, it. and it's nice to see that flexibility from a show. Uh, the the other interesting thing, well, there were some really strong routines. I really liked the the Broadway number. It was the first actually interesting Broadway number to me, by far yeah. the best story. It was one of the highlights of the week and really showed off those those two. It's it's very interesting to watch 
like that opening number is a pasa doble, right? And they it's danced well, but the thing with paso is it needs to be into the ground. There needs to be an intense physicality to that. And you compare that performance with the Broadway number when you actually you believe that that is a cop. You know, he he's he has enough of a hulking presence. You know, just broad enough shoulders to pull off. Me, this guy could actually, if there was a situation, handle it as opposed to the very talented, amazing shape dancers who are just smaller, who still get yeah. cast and that as was, these other roles. And that was Aaron and Jasmine H., yeah, doing the yes. Broadway number? Yes, Who are my favorite couple, definitely. And, and I, th- I think that just that comes down partially to their physicality. They stand out so much because... Not not to slightly other dancers, but they just kind of seem more like adults. <laughs> There's a lot of 19-year-olds in the competition this year. And Jasmine H is, I believe she's 19 as well, but they're, they're on she the lower so much more mature. end of the age spectrum. Yeah, And that could even just be, again, she's just so much taller and she's paired with, with Aaron, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's older and also a lot taller. So just they have a stronger physical presence. It takes a lot of personality to make up for that. And some of the dancers do, but I thought that Broadway number is really effective. Are there any other yeah. numbers that stood out to you? The, uh, the matrixy Pasa Doble routine was uh, odd. Uh, kind of interesting. Although I, I think fiction and Amy are probably my second favorite couple just cause they're so damn likable. They are. <laughs> and, and they're, and they're, they're at least good every week. And I, I'm, I'm really rooting hardcore for them and the audience seems to like them as well. Uh, in general, I'm finding the women almost uniformly stronger than the men, with the exception of Nico, who's great. Yeah, but th- that that takes us to the the other thing I wanted to mention for this. They sent the wrong person home, at least based they on did, what we've yes. seen. I do not understand why they're keeping Alexis in this competition. And I really liked her audition, and I, I like her personality, what we've seen of it. But she has not shown anywhere near the versatility required in this competition. I just... I don't, I do not understand why she is still in the competition, why she wasn't cut this week. And she's holding Nico back in a big way. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I it must come down to, they talk about how they, they take into account what the choreographers have to say. And maybe, the, I do find it frustrating that they always talk about what the choreographers have to say, but we never actually get any direct input from the choreographers. Yeah, but I mean, it can be, it can be a bit of a dick move to be like, yeah, this person is a failure. I don't like them well, for this. No, you know, they, they can, it's not they can a be pleasant construct- thing to be cut. They can they can be constructive about it. They can say that you know this is this person's great at this. They could stand to work on this. You know, they can find ways to incorporate them that wouldn't be dickish. Yeah, but sometimes it just comes down to personality, and then they don't. I I don't know. I see what you're saying. It doesn't bother me, I guess. But I do see what I do see what you're saying. Yeah. There are certain people that you can tell that they've decided are really good and should be stars and are sticking around. Yeah. And uh, I feel like Alexis is one of those, but I haven't seen it. Whatever it is, I haven't seen it. It doesn't, hasn't come through the TV. Maybe they were just sick of having two Jasmines. I don't know. Ah, but uh, she, Jasmine was, the other Jasmine was one of my, my favorites too. I thought she was fantastic in really all of her routines this year. So that J- was Jasmine M. Yes. It was a real disappointment, but anyways, I agree. That uh, I would give it to So You Think You Can Dance this week for reality because I do very much enjoy that show um, as much as I enjoyed American Baking Competition. So let's take a break and come back and talk drama and genre. Thanksgiving's coming twice this year, ladies. Spread the word. Okay. I understand what you have to do. What? I'm not a fighter. Go ahead. I'm a little busy here. Pick up those rags. I'm not going to swing first. Good. 
Just hit me and get it over with. I said I'm a little busy. I'm not leaving until you do it. You want me to hit you? Yeah. Okay, get ready. You called my food disgusting. You're not getting hazed. You're not getting harassed. You're getting starved to death. You leave Litchfield as a skeleton in a body bag. Pow! Now march your yuppie ass out of my kitchen. Slowly, so you don't burn too many calories. This week in drama, we have Nine for Nine, Pat XO. Um, we have the bridge pilot. We have the newsroom premiere. First thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. We have True Blood, fuck the pain away. And we have Orange is the New Black. I guess season one. I've seen the first six. How much have you seen? I've seen the first ten. Interesting. Which which which, which might be the first time in Televerse history I've, mm-hmm. I've outpaced you on anything. Yeah, if we were recording at a normal time, I would have caught up. But we have to record a little early because of Comic-Con. Uh, I'll catch up, sir. You have yeah. me this week. Yeah, you will. But I am one up on you for 9 for 9, and I did, there was not a D- DVR mishap, so I did actually catch this one. It was about Pat Summit, the, of course, fantastic, amazing women's basketball coach, collegiate women's basketball coach, and it was a wonderful documentary. I, I had heard of her, I went, especially when... Um, when she broke the record and became the winningest college basketball coach. I remember hearing a lot about her then, but I was not hugely familiar with her or her story or her, you know, her life. And just like with the, with the 30 for 30 series, I thought this was very well made. I thought it was a really interesting structure, the way that it was all interviews. Basically, it sounds like the documentarians sort of sent cameras or sent camera crews out to to interview a lot of different people who had been coached by or knew or worked with or lived with um, or grew up with Pat Summit and they sort of uh, superated the 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 shape of the frame and everything and and sort of spliced them together in this really interesting way and I thought it, it really worked so surprise surprise I liked the nine for nine this week I look forward to the rest of the series I'm and I'm hoping I can catch up with Venus versus at some point hopefully they will replay it but uh, no, wonderful. So glad to be able to to catch that one. Next up, let's talk the bridge pilot. There was a lot of, of buzz for this one. It had it had some hype to live up to. Did it did it meet your expectations? Exceed them, or were you a little underwhelmed? Well, I think the main reason it had hype. Let's go. I mean, let's go past the fact that it's based on a Danish series, which was extremely well received. Blah blah blah. I mean, let's. It's just the fact that it's a new FX drama. And FX's drama lineup is unparalleled right now, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and also the cast. And, the, you know, the, uh, yes, the cast has a, a, has a huge pedigree behind it to some degree. Uh, but I think that uh, it was not as good, or rather, it's not, not as perfect a pilot as FX dramas tend to get. I mean, The Americans pilot is great. The Justified pilot is spectacular. Uh, the Terriers pilot is really good, et cetera, et cetera. The uh, Shield pilot is one of the best oh, the, ever. The Shield pilot is exemplary for sure. Uh, this was merely, I thought, good. Uh, sometimes very good. I think that it's got some problems going forward, and I think it's got some really, really, really promising stuff going forward as well. I think the biggest assets for me are the setting, 
which is totally unlike anything else on TV that I've seen recently. Uh, the fact that I, I love the fact that they went all the way and made at, it seemed like at least 50 percent of this pilot at least was in Spanish with subtitles, which was a ballsy and realistic move that not a lot of networks would have gone for. Yeah, I still felt like there should have been more, though. I was watching it going, wait, why are they speaking English in this family? Are you, are, are you think? Oh, but see, I, I, are, you, are you thinking of the scenes with Bashir and his son? Because the I, scenes I, with, but also with his wife. The whole thing should have been subtitled, and most of it was, but parts of it weren't. With with the wife, I, I get it. With the son, though, I could see him as the, as the kind of father who wants his son to eventually emigrate to the States. So perhaps trying to get him like ultimately out of that area so that made sense to me as a, in a in a character sense with the wife i can i can get it unless although we don't really know what her background is yet so well, we'll or see. with the, the strained relationship with the uh the son if if he was speaking in english and the son was responding in spanish as that that would have been an interesting way to show that dynamic of those two that i would have you know bought that more i guess but I, I don't know i was glad when they started using a lot more it could just be that i need to because i, I reacted so strongly goes like wait 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 why aren't why aren't they speaking spanish and when it did come in later i was very appreciative um so maybe if i upon rewatch it won't bother me as much mm -hmm. and also maybe as we learn more about the characters if they decide to yes of course yeah yeah because because this this ends this ends very much in media res like it doesn't feel like those pilots we all talked about are fairly self-contained and this feels like much more the first chapter of a way longer story. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, however, I don't know. It sounds like this was more split for me than it sounds like it was for you. I, the, the stuff with, I'm just going to call him Jono <laughs> from yes, top of the lake. Who uh, I didn't recognize at first. That was creepy. Uh, very effective, but I, I just am not, I didn't really care enough. I, once she was over the border, you know, that I was engaged more in that part. I was like, that, that would be terrifying. And, you know, people do this all the time. And I can't imagine, you know, what your life has to be like such that you're going to get in some stranger's car trunk and you don't know what's going to, you know, I thought that was really effective. I don't know that I want to see another yay. Somebody chained up inside a trailer home with bars and let's, Bad things happening to women, and I'm gonna give them some time. And obviously, this, this is their story. I'm gonna see where it goes, but I'm a little leery of that part. Also, I really don't care about the 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 husband dying, though. That is that was a double kick to the nuts. I don't love you. Let's get divorced. Death. Dead. <laughs> it's like I love you. I don't love you. Let's get divorced, and then they're dead. Yeah. Yeah. That was. Yeah, <laughs> but other parts of that story aren't, aren't working for me as well. So how are those two working, you know, how those two elements of the of the pilot, uh, you know, well, again, how like, working it's, for you? it's really hard to say it's because it, it it's very obviously something that's going to be continuing. I have I, I guess the best say the best thing I can say about those plots is that I legitimately have no idea where they're going. None whatsoever. Like, it doesn't feel like something that's playing out in a way I've necessarily seen before. And for the kind of story they're telling that's that's a good way to go so i'm happy with it i mean i think that we we're, we got to get there so let's talk about diane Kruger. um and I, I feel like that was my biggest problem with the pilot it just seemed like i and you know it's it's hard you know pilots are hard and i think it's just there's there's a chasm for me between bashir to me nails his character 
like from the get-go i think he's fantastic it's the sort of performance that you can already tell isn't gonna get enough love because it's not the sort of it's so low-key and he's this you, you, you there's so much shading they're gonna be able to do with him just based on the fact that he's in this compromised position or potentially compromised and he knows it and he may not do anything about it but it might be defensible because of his family but like i can mm-hmm. i can already telegraph interesting things they can do with him whereas with kruger it feels like they maybe play the Asperger's angle. They, they played it a lot harder than I was expecting to. Like she really, there are scenes where she, it seems as though she's literally been told to act like a robot. Like she's, she's acting in the, in a almost stereotypical fashion. And, and there are scenes where it kind of works. I like all her scenes with Ted Levine and uh, you know, he talks about retirement, but I'm assuming he sticks around for at least the season. Cause yeah. that's how these things work. Yeah. If uh, not, he sticks along uh, around long enough to get killed to yeah, you know I, I, intensify I like the drama i like their scenes together and i actually think that when this when the pilot really gets going i think bashir and kruger have great chemistry and i was so glad that there's not even the slightest inkling of oh, romantic yes. chemistry i'm sure we so both dug glad. that yeah uh, amanda i would be i would be very surprised if they ever like just based on this pilot it doesn't seem like they're ever going to do that with them which fantastic some of the other touches uh, a little over the top but i guess but again it's not something they can't fix it just for me in the context of this episode it was a little bit on the rich side well i was a little surprised by cougar's performance but just because there was so much talk of hey how come they don't tell people that she has asperger's they do in this performance they don't need to say by the way in case you hadn't picked up on it our lead character our lead female protagonist is different than other lead female protagonists i thought that they did a really good job of just this is who she is actually you know it didn't always work for me but i think my issue was less with Kruger's performance and more how the episode used her and showed her. So her first scenes, I really had trouble with that character and that performance. The performance felt not too, not too good. <laughs> it felt a little too mannered. Well, but, the, the- but later in the episode, it was really working for me. I don't think the performance changed. I, th- I feel like the amount of time the camera lingers on, I like how the camera and how the director are treating the character in the context of everything else that's happening, I think changes over the course of the episode, making her much more, more palatable and, and um, at least feeling much more like an actual realized person later in the episode. Did, yeah. I will that say me? that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that there's something to that. I will say that uh, Gerardo Naranjo, I hope I didn't butcher your name, dude. Uh, who did Miss Bala, he's got experience with this kind of material, did a fantastic job directing this. There's some real, it's just, it's gorgeous to look at and just the attention to detail. I mean, it's it's a double, it's essentially a double length pilot, which is normally a pain in the ass, but I actually thought it zoomed by pretty quickly. So that's always a good sign. Well, it's not quite double. It's, it was an hour and a half. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. Okay. So Whatever, similar to, to the Americans premiere lengthwise. Uh, and and right. again, I would agree. Like anyone who's been listening for a while knows that we dread we double like length pilots. pilots. <laughs> They're almost yeah. always terrible or they yeah. almost never need that extra length. But the Venture Brothers pilot did this year and used it very well. I thought that I would agree that this one used it very well as well. Yeah, I, th- I think that going forward, my biggest concern is uh, how the Kruger's character. I mean, the the Kruger character, I think the the main reason the early scenes don't work is that I just don't get or buy how someone whose affliction is this severe 
and who has this trouble, this much trouble relating to people, especially that scene with the with the grieving father. I thought that was way over the top. Oh, but I loved the eye contact. She was like staring at his eyes the whole time because she had been reminded <laughs> about her eye contact. I thought that was right. hilarious. But, but still, like, you think, how did this person get this job? Like, I get that Ted Levine's character is looking after her, but still, it seems like a bit much. So I think they have to walk back from that a little in, in the future. But that's that's what happens with pilots. I'm I'm still I'm very curious to see where this goes. I I foresee at least a couple really great episodes. I think my honestly my biggest misgiving is just I'm a little bit worried about the technological mastermind villain who's apparently who they're apparently <laughs> dealing with. Although I am interested in the fact that we have a villain who's apparently not the typical uh, sex crazed serial killer maniac, but someone more ideologically driven. I think that's kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, it's nice to see that, you know, a little different touch with it, which is why I'm not, people seem pretty convinced that Jono is the guy, at least Doesn't what I'm seeing. for me. I don't think that makes any sense. So that's going to come in some other way, I'm pretty sure. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Let's move on to the newsroom premiere. First thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Oh, the newsroom. I know how excited oh, you were for so this. Excited. I'm actually not so excited now. Oh. I was really excited to uh, to have it back. But now that it's back, I'm not as excited. That's how it works, Sorkin. Sorry. You know, you know what would make the newsroom great would be if Aaron Sorkin could write um, basic plot outlines for a season or for episodes, maybe write a few zingers here and there, and then let really actually great writers <laughs> handle the rest of it. Or or at least writers who don't feel like handling the material in this way, because I feel like throughout this episode especially, more so than in, in most of last season, we get glimpses of a show that could be really, really good. Like, really good. There are scenes in this episode where I'm thinking, is this a show that I was planning on hate watching? Because I'm actually enjoying it right now. Like, when it's what? just... I know, like, especially, um, you know, um, Mackenzie just you know, fixing their, their, uh, their news reports on the fly. That stuff is great. It's detail oriented. It has her being good at her job for a change, which I'm sure is something they've focused very heavily on something. They've clearly done a lot of work on and we're clear. They clearly got the memo on that perhaps to an obnoxious degree. And, you know, in those moments, the show is actually humming along nicely and it's fun to watch. And I, I will say that I laughed once at, uh, at Dev Patel's character saying that he got a call from Gaddafi. That was funny. Uh, most of the other singers didn't work for me, but I appreciated the effort. But then we get to the Occupy Wall Street stuff. Uh, God damn it. What? <laughs> who, uh, who thought that was a good... I mean, obviously Sorkin thought it was a good idea, but just this... And then it brought me back to my to my basic ground level biggest complaint about, about the newsroom, which is it's so pointless. It is so elaborately pointless to go back to things that we, you know, to get this 2020 hindsight on things that, you know, should have been covered properly in the news but weren't covered properly, but now that we're covering it in a fictional way, you know, looking back at the events, we can be pithy and fun about it while also pointing, like, oh, it's just so cheap and useless. Do you know what I'm saying? Are you catching my drift? Yeah, definitely. Well, because the thing, when you compare it to West Wing, which I think is the the easiest comparison for for at least well, the point I'm about, about to make. Well, no, but when you compare it to West Wing, watching West Wing, you know, is supposed to give you this. Oh, wouldn't it be awesome if that's what our political system was actually like? If that's what the White House and and Congress, if that's what actually was going on there. But this is. Wouldn't it be nice if 
two years ago we had had these people to, to doing our news wouldn't it be nice if this had been our news as opposed to if this is was what our news is right now and i think that that, that is a significant difference if, if they totally. had the same characters in the same situations half of them stupid and terrible and half of them actually interesting telling fictionalized stories set in a obscure time or set distinctly now i would be way more interested but instead it just feels like a someone we know is very socially and politically minded uh, telling his version of what the world should be and we you know he knew it then and and that's obviously not necessarily what sorkin is trying to do but he has an inherent and it comes back to to tie it in with Jessnick. there's an inherent smugness, smugness not Absolutely. only to Will McAvoy, but to pretty much all of the the Sorkin male lead leads. You know, you have that with with Dan um, in 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 Sports Night, and Peter Krause is just so likable that it doesn't really bother you. You have it with Josh in West Wing, and again, Bradley Woodford is just so likable that you and, and he has Donna cutting him down, so you know you let it go. But here, it just it just it's reached critical mass, and that's still a problem in this season. There, there are things that are better. There are things that haven't changed, and it, I would be surprised if they do. But the things that I wanted to specifically mention, well, first of all, I continue to be impressed with Olivia Munn. I very much enjoy her. She can certainly stay. It would be nice to see another project use her as well as she's being used here because that has not happened for her until this point. I just need, I need to add to that and say I'm shocked at, at the fact that she's the, the, the positive outlier on this cast because she's one of the main reasons that I thought it was going to be a disaster. And I, yeah. I think she's acquitted herself very well, which I'm, I'm eating my words, people who know who are listening. <laughs> but the the other the point that that stood out to me in this was it's a premiere. And what happens with the relationships feel like it should have happened in the finale. So we start the premiere and the couples that should not be together are still together. And, the you know, the this the stupid baggage from last season is still hanging over half of this premiere and uh, they just I, I don't want to be this anxious for Alison Pill to get assaulted or whatever's going to happen to her in Africa so that her storyline can change and maybe she can be interesting because right now I just want her off of my television and that's because of what Aaron Sorkin is giving her a talented actress to say and to mm -hmm. work with and it is really a shame yeah, Alison Pill is one of my favorite, like, sort of, you know, youngish actresses kicking around. Like, I think she's fantastic. You know, she was one of the best parts of Scott Pilgrim, for instance. And yeah, I totally agree. She's no fun to watch in this at all. And uh, and the, and McAvoy continues to just be an incredibly obnoxious protagonist that I just don't have any interest in spending time with. And I'm sorry, but the Rebecca Black gag was awful and cringeworthy the two or three times that came up. It was not funny or believable, or it was just such an obvious... Sorkin it was just such an obvious like middle-aged guy gag you know what I mean you know what I was really happy about though I couldn't place the song I was like oh yeah that sounds vaguely familiar and then you tweeted I was like oh yeah that's right that was Friday huh oh, I had forgotten for it I felt so proud of myself well anything else you want to specifically mention do you have any thoughts on the the device that we get at the beginning of the episode it is nice to, to find out that they do screw something up hardcore nice to see them actually be wrong about something of course they can only be wrong about a fictional story but still the point remains well i, I was reading about the real life inspiration for that story and it was in sorkin picking up on that and learning all about that so that was inspired by a real thing although they definitely they blow it a little bit out of proportion here of course because it's sorkin 
so yeah, that's kind of an interesting angle, but I don't know. I, I, if they keep up the flashback structure, I think I'm going to start to find that really annoying. Oh, I do remember one other thing I wanted to mention. When we when Mac calls Will and he's sitting out on his balcony and the last shot we have of him is in a blatant Christ pose. I don't care if your camera is positioned such that we don't actually see the T. We see his two arms stretched out. We see his legs propped up straight across on the balcony. I was like, oh, my God, you've got to be. That's like (laughs) that's like cliche, stupid film school 101. Like I I was getting annoyed with blatant Christ imagery when I was in high school watching student films. So the fact that we're, I mean, I I got, I tweeted, I was like, of course, what did I think? This is Sorkin's The Newsroom and this is the Sorkin stand-in. Of course he's also a Christ figure in this. Oh, sorry. Had to to invent Uh, that bile. (laughs) Ah, The Newsroom. It's changed, but it's still the same. And moving on to True Blood. That felt like a good segue. Uh, so we we jumped back in because we heard positive things about this episode. Was it worth it? Uh, I mean, I had fun with it. I watched it on the commuter train back home, and it was a perfectly painless watch, which I can't always have said about some of the previous episodes. Uh, nice to have Anna Camp around. I take it she's was in the cast before. She's enjoyably nuts here. She sort of gets to be a little bit more manic and ridiculous than she generally gets to be on other things, so I appreciated that. Uh, and Steve Newland is back, of course, this week as well. The... I guess my enjoyment of this, of this episode kind of hinges on future episodes because I, I kind of feel like this episode brought back the... Because I feel like other episodes of the season have been lacking for cliffhangers, and I, I think we got at least one good one this week. Well, it wasn't the actual cliffhanger. Spoiler alert, they're not going to kill Anna Paquin. Well, no, sadly. Uh, but I, I was talking about the previous... I mean, you know, like, let's have uh, let's have Skarsgård and, and, uh, and what's-her-name battle it out. Great. That's a good clip. That actually should have been the, the cliffhanger, to be honest. Two of the very that. few characters we actually care about. Yes. Yeah. That was and good. Who they could, and who they could potentially kill off if they felt like. Be- and, and I feel like at this point, we're reaching roughly the period where new showrunner and his plots take effect. I feel like maybe uh, got renewed today, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that. Yes, uh, I did. But we but I don't know. I, I thought this episode mostly. Sh- I mean, I feel like there's been a sense of self seriousness to some of the uh, dialogue and uh, and treatment. This in previous episodes, I felt that was totally gone this week, and there was absolutely there was it was there was very little that felt like it was taking itself at all seriously, which is the right way to go. I was uh, having skipped a couple of weeks. I was uh, very relieved to find out that Chris Bauer was no longer burdened with fairy children. Uh, I feel like that yeah. was a deliberate new showrunner move, by the way, to kill the fairy off. child. <laughs> Children, there was a bunch of them. Yeah, now he's he's fairy child. Well, yes, now he's now he's done one, but still. Yeah. Um, uh, which, yeah, that that felt like a deliberate f u to Alan Ball to just totally kill most of them off. I could be wrong, but. Yeah, the fairy children thing that was this season. We had pregnant fairy last season, but fairy children was this season. So, so that's after that's post Ellen Ball. But, no, but it wasn't I, I take I, I I'm under the impression he was involved in the first few episodes of this season. Nope, I don't no? think so. Yeah, mm, it was new showrunner right. and then second new showrunner <laughs> this season. But uh, who knows what happened? What's happening behind the scenes? He was the show creator. I'm sure he's very involved. You know, it's he's still I was assume an executive producer. Lots of things could happen. Right, but it still I have feels no like insight. They, it felt like they were going one way with the fairies, and then they just were like, "Screw it, let's get rid of them." Yeah, and one of the things that this episode really does well, and that clearly the show has been doing better in the past couple episodes, is tying everything together. On that note, 
again, I'd want to be enjoying Joe Manganiello and and Robert Patrick and and yeah and 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 uh, Smollett. What's her first name? Uh, Journey Smollett. Yeah. Journey Smollett. And instead, they're stuck in a completely useless. Should be cut entirely out of the show. Would this episode would have been much better with all of that lifted out. Uh, storyline and and so but but i have am impressed with the way that they are drawing all the other plot lines together in a way that actually does kind of make sense and i and well well done there i'm tired of magically hot sookie we have that storyline yet again with warlow i'm tired of uh lafayette doesn't get to be lafayette which we get again this week there's a lot of storylines that they do keep recycling but at least they're kind of trying to bring all their characters together in a meaningful and interesting way such as we get like you said, with Pam and, and Eric here. Anna Camp, is, like you said, is always great. It's wonderful to have her back. Nice to know why she's going to be at Comic-Con. Clearly, you know, she has a big part to play this season. Ryan Quanton continues to be the MVP of this season. I thought he was hilarious this week, especially his reading of, well, that's good because your last ex was a gay vampire. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I laughed out loud at that. Quanton's great. But the thing with Jason that was annoying here was his, oh man, I can't believe I was being all anti-vampire there for a few days. It's like, you made us watch that for, like, six episodes. Several episodes last season, several episodes this season. You're like, that was a weird couple of days where I was horribly racist or specious against vampires. Now I'm on the vampire bandwagon again. And it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. That felt like a punch to the face. <laughs> Thank you for watching and investing. We're going to do this. You, you know we've had some upheaval behind the scenes. We're just going to be totally flagrant about it and move on. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, more enjoyable, but I didn't feel like it was a significant upswing for the show, but it does have me slightly more promising. Oh, also, everything at Merlot's can go that doesn't have Lafayette. So as much as I enjoy Carrie Preston, that storyline, and apparently uh, Terry's going to have himself killed, That don't care about that either. That really could not happen as far as I'm concerned. Um, they just need to focus... They need more focus. They need to kill off these other characters or stop showing them. I feel just like a broken record here. Anything else on, on this episode? No, I agree. Some improvements, some annoyances. Hopefully they can keep this light tone up even while they keep the stakes high. Hopefully high stakes. Ha. <laughs> yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I'd agree. Let's move on to our final drama here. We have Orange is the New Black. I watched the first six. You watched the first ten. Ha. And... I to just I'm just gonna lead big. This is another one that looks like it's in contention for my top ten. I really liked this season, or at least what I've seen of it so far. Yeah, uh, th- we're gonna be doing a proper shelf on this at some point in the near future. So we're yes, gonna just yes, we will. <laughs> we're gonna be discussing it in vague, non-spoilery fashion this week, since I assume most people haven't had time to watch a whole lot of it already. Uh, so this is the new series uh, co-created by Genji Cohen, who most people know for Weeds, and it's a theoretically similar setup to Weeds. You know, well off, I guess, previously suburbanite, but in this case, you know, upper class white lady gets involved in crime. Hilarity ensues. We we, we had a, a, a moment of miniature debate as to whether to stick this in comedy or drama, but I do think it's about 53 to 60 percent drama, 40 to 47 percent comedy. Although the balance shifts a little bit. I think that uh, there's a lot that's it's, it's going to sound boring, but there's so much about the show that is refreshing which makes it sound like I'm praising the show for, you know, just having certain qualities that necessarily being good. And I think the, the great thing about the show is that it starts off just being refreshing. And I think the longer you watch it, the further along you go, the more you realize it's actually also good along with being refreshing, which is great because then you're not just enjoying it on an academic level. Uh, the pilot isn't perfect. I think that the more that they incorporate the ensemble, uh, which is quite wide, 
I mean, and, and featuring a lot of people we haven't spent a lot of time with, or sometimes in, in some cases, no time with on our TVs ever. Uh, the more that they get incorporated and the more that Piper uh, played by uh, Taylor Schilling, the more that she becomes just sort of another character as opposed to the character, the more the show works. And actually the more the character of Piper works. Cause I think when she's sort of the, when she and Jason Biggs are really at, at the heart of the show, you kind of just want to be spending more time with the others thinking, Oh, what's red up to which is Kate Mulgrew, who is fan effing tastic in this. And yeah, so much to say about the show and I, I don't want to spoil it all, but yeah, people should definitely be watching this. Yeah. I wasn't as bowled over by the pilot as everybody else seems to have been. So I watched the pilot and then later checked in with some more episodes when I had a little, little more downtime and I left the pilot going, yeah, I mean, it's promising. It's solid. You know, I, 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 I kept hearing there are all these amazing characters and in the pilot you don't really get to meet any of them not in a particularly meaningful way and and then the second episode kicks in and it's red and the third episode kicks in and like each of these episodes give you a lot of insight to these various characters and and just like everybody else has said in a very boring reaction I do really enjoy most of the characters that that people this this jail or this prison i should say and uh i i don't actually remember the name of it especially like lynchfield or something yeah something like that lynchfield something like that yeah and uh and it just it shows you how invest i was i was like heartbroken that she didn't get the in that she'll mean something to people and won't mean anything to other people and hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler but uh i that shows you how invested i was because it's such a ridiculous storyline and yet i was absolutely engrossed in that let alone all of the other the various dramas and comedies that are happening all at once i will say that i it just like you said it's refreshing to see an actually diverse cast age-wise and ethnicity and just they don't all look like tv people they look like people people and it's just so nice to see people that look normal for the most part on my television it's really only taylor Schilling who looks you know, who has like TV star look really. Uh, and which is why it's slightly annoying to have her as the clear lead. I think in that pilot, when you're thinking, Oh, it's so great to have other, you know, you know, these characters and body types that we're not used to seeing on TV. And they're just kind of on the periphery was, which is so when they each get sort of their turn in the spotlight, you're like, hell yeah, this is where has this show been? Well, and they, they each, the, these various actors get, in their flashbacks, they get a chance to, to chance to look good, right? They look good for the most part at various points in their flashbacks, and then you flash forward and they're in prison, so they don't have you know time to to do an elaborate hair styles unless you're in the salon, which is awesome. I love the salon, or or elaborate makeup or those other things. I love how Laura Prepon, who of course is a very attractive woman, they I feel like they're drawing in the dark circles even darker on her i like that she looks tired and sort of haggard and they could make her look great but they don't yeah and i, th- I think it's got an excellent balance i mean weeds i think in its first couple of seasons weeds was very good and i think this is a little better than weeds was at its best at least so far i'm, I'm waiting to see how the, how the season wraps up and i think uh, cohen has a really good eye and ear for how to balance uh drama and comedy and to lace her her comedy with with really dark ideas and dark sentiments without it being overbearing, and I I it, at some points the lightness almost becomes too much. Like it it seems like the prison becomes too nice a place to live, and I I think there's a stretch, maybe from episodes seven to ten 
or six to nine, where it seems like they're the balance is a little out of whack, but that quickly corrects itself. And uh, I, I think that her she's she's got a great handle on tone, and it's it's a fantastic cast. The writing is really sharp, and I, I will also say that even though I don't I don't think Piper is necessarily the most interesting character all the time, I do think that her on screen sort of you know obviously mostly long distance relationship with Jason Biggs, who's an actor I don't care about at all. Uh, I think that their relationship is one of the most believable in the last couple of years of TV. I think they've, they've got so, like, even though they've got chemistry, which is an odd thing to say because they spend so much of the show apart, but they they feel genuine and lived in and real in a way that a lot of other TV couples don't. Yeah, I would agree with that. And um, the other, we, we singled out Kate Mulgrew. I want to also single out uh, Natasha Leone because I think she's been fantastic this season. So, uh, it's it's nice to see you're back on, on my on my TV and a very interesting character as well. I look forward to getting even more information about her. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really really great show. Um, at least what I've seen of it so far. I look forward to catching up with the rest of it and to our eventual DVD shelf. Yes, and uh, quickly mention Pablo Schreiber, who's who he and his mustache are doing great work, and <laughs> uh, not nice work, but great work. It feels authentic, and I don't have really anything to base that on. But it it feels like this is what prison might feel like. Yes, and I'll, I'll and and can we just can we agree on this? So easily the best Netflix thing so far. Oh yeah, definitely. So easily. easily. Yeah. Yeah, that's not even a conversation as far as I'm concerned. Original Netflix. I mean, the fall came out on Netflix, and that's a yeah. But that was yeah. It wasn't produced by them, so yeah. Different situation. Yeah. So easily. Yeah, and is this gonna? Do you think this will be in contention for your top ten? I'm waiting to see how the season wraps up, but it's certainly it's it's looking at least like a top fifteen contender. It's okay. it's a really it's a really crowded field this year. Okay, speaking of crowded field, what's gonna what's gonna win your week in in drama? Oh well, I gotta give it to Orange Is the New Black for sure. Yeah, I, I really did. I really enjoyed that nine for nine documentary, but I I think I do have to give it to Orange Orange Is the New Black. I I do think that the bridge is bound for great things. Like I'm I. I would certainly be potential. I would be shocked if it didn't do great things this season, just based on various factors as well as FX's pedigree. There are some very smart people working there doing very interesting work, and I think that even if it's not perfect, I think the bridge is eventually going to get there. We will see. We will report back as we continue with our week in TV. A few show notes here before we go to our DVD shelf with Les Chapel of This Was Television and the AV Club talking Rubicon, of course. Our intro and outro music is Sweet Petite by the Bicycles. You can find a post up for this podcast at soundonsite.org and you can leave us comments there. Let us know what you thought of all the, the TV from this week uh, as well as what you're looking forward to for next week. You can reach us by email theteleverse at gmail.com or you can like us on Facebook and uh, follow what's going on at, at Sound on Sight TV there. I should mention I did not put up a Make Kate Watch poll for this week and I'm not going to put one up for this next week because of Comic-Con crazy. I just don't have time for extra TV. I didn't think I would get more than a couple episodes of Orange is the New Black in, let alone and anything else. So when we get back from Comic-Con I, there will be a poll and yes Mario's suits will be on it. But for this next week, I'm going to hold off on the poll and I'll bring it back after Comic-Con has, has died down. Of course, you can also follow us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse. You are? At Sucker Howell. 
And we, of course, we are also on iTunes with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And as we said earlier, we do very much appreciate any feedback you can give us there, a rating or a review. It does help other people find the show, as, of course, would sharing or retweeting or any of that stuff, too. So if you enjoy the show, share it with your friends. Maybe they'll like it, too. Any uh, final thoughts, sir? What's our question of the week? Well, seeing as Orange is the New Black is doing great things with a women's correctional facility, which is a setting we haven't necessarily seen in our in our TV screens recently, although uh, True Blood came kind of close this week also, uh, I guess, is there a setting that you feel has been underrepresented that you maybe, maybe the sort of, you know, do you work at an interesting job that you think would make for an, for an interesting, you know, workplace setting that you've just never seen represented before? I'd be, I'd be curious to see if, you know, some ideas I can pilfer for a future pitch, basically. Nice, yeah, yeah. Sell, sell us your your new pilot, your new Netflix series, nice. so that I can steal it. <laughs> well, uh, we're gonna take a break now, listen to a clip and some music, and come back with Les Chapel of This Was Television to talk Rubicon. I think I found a pattern: four leaf clover. Our three branches of government are here: legislative, executive, judicial. What or who does that fourth leaf represent? What's the big picture? You'll know soon enough. People I answer to are eager for resolution. I've never seen anything like it. Maybe there is no why. There's always a why. You just don't understand it. Someone either didn't expect the pattern to be caught or wasn't afraid if it was. Whose work is this, David? It's mine. You do know they hide and play in Buda. Keeping secrets. That's the hardest thing in this job. Who's they? Dad. Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik joined as ever by Simon Howell and this week at the DVD shelf we are talking Rubicon, the short-lived AMC series. Lots to talk about with Rubicon and here to, to help us discuss the show from This Was Television and now the AV Club is Les Chapel. Les, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. So Rubicon. Ah, Rubicon. Beloved, late lamented Rubicon. What made you want to discuss the series? Uh, well, a mix of reasons. First of all, when I mentioned it on the Blackadder podcast, you asked me to do it, so I figured it would just have been impolite of me to say no. <laughs> Even though I feel a little, I feel strange discussing it for the DVD backshelf because it's a show that does not yet have a DVD release, and this is like Terriers, one of those beloved one-season shows that, despite the fact there are people who love it and would be perfectly happy to have a DVD, no one seems to be able to invest in it. And I really think that's sad because Rubicon was, for me personally, it's one of the shows that I really lament its cancellation the most. It was on the, it came on in 2010, well, the time that AMC was really starting to get its feet wet. It had already had Mad Men and Breaking Bad, and Rubicon looked like it was really going to continue its high, its high quality standard for shows. But the ratings teetered off, and it was canceled after one season, and then The Walking Dead completely shattered ratings for AMC, and they, 
and their perspective changed a little bit. And I really just do think that's sad because Rubicon is one of the most interesting shows that's aired in the last few years, certainly one of the most psychological. And I think it's a show that a lot of current shows on the air owe something to. Yeah, I certainly think Rubicon is interesting outside of just the content of the show in what it says about the direction of AMC, the direction that the, the network decided to go, because it was the first series that they did that didn't get picked up for another season and become just sort of a unqualified a critical hit at least you know even if it didn't get great great ratings or great numbers and i looking at amc's panel of shows that they have now obviously breaking bad is coming into its final half season starting in august mad men will be finishing up next season we think and uh and barring some sort of surprise and with those two series off the air in the next year there i don't think i will be watching amc anymore because I'm way more interested in the type of programming represented by a show like Rubicon than I am by, say, Hell on Wheels or even The Walking Dead, as much as that is such a popular show. And with, with the decision to cancel Rubicon, because it did have, let's just be honest, terrible ratings. You can't oh, really blame them. Oh, absolutely terrible ratings. Terrible I'm, ratings. I'm looking at them right now. It, it only opened with a million viewer, with 1.7 million viewers, which was fine for AMC back in the days before AMC had really caught fire. But... And it just, you look at the ratings, it never really teetered any farther from about getting more than a million viewers, which makes it look like it's on, it looks like the cable equivalent of NBC. Yeah. Despite it, yeah, terrible, terrible ratings, it, this is such a much more interesting show and a much more intellectual show than the shows we would start getting from AMC after The Walking Dead. And it's a, to me, it's a shame that they decided to abandon this type of storytelling even though I completely understand and respect the business reasons that, that they did so. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I thought to myself, it's not really possible that that many more people watch Hell on Wheels than did Rubicon, right? Uh, and then I, and then I you know, did some quick research and found out that at its worst, no, twice as many people watch Hell on Wheels as Rubicon. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, thank you, America. Uh, <laughs> Way to go. Uh, but Rubicon, yeah, I, I'm every time I, I dip back into Rubicon, just watch an episode or two again after not having re, after not having seen it for a while, I get fascinated with it all over again. It's I love the way it's it's basically a, a season length and I guess would have been a series length exploration of sort of the the atmospherics of 70s conspiracy thrillers, except even more drawn out, which I think which for me is just catnip. You know, I think of things like the parallax view, um, you know, uh, marathon man, et cetera, et cetera. Three except days of the even, condor. Three days of the condor, except even more languidly paced, which to me is just, that's heaven. Hmm. Uh, with that being said, I mean, I don't, I don't think the show is by any means perfect. I think it's got all kinds of holes, especially I think uh, we should, we will probably want to mention that there was clearly a, a creative shakeup. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Almost right off the bat. Yeah, the the show was yeah, the show was originally created by Jason Horwich, who was he was the one who wrote the pilot, and AMC essentially kicked forced him out after that, and then they brought due to the all popular creative differences, and then Henry and then 
the and then they brought in Henry Brommel, the late Henry Brommel, who had worked on such show, who had worked on Homicide and a few other shows, and he basically restructured the show, uh, go, going immediately from the second episode onwards. And that is always going to be one of the problems with Rubicon is that for everything it does well, it's so clearly a show that you can tell going forward is trying to shed some of the things that were introduced in the pilot because in the, the the very beginning of the show introduces the conspiracy where will will the james badgedale character his uh his boss is killed in an apparent train accident and we find out that that's linked to some con- to an arch conspiracy and that at the same time cat uh there's a completely different plot going on with Catherine rumor the miranda richardson character researching what looks like the same uh pot what it could be the same conspiracy what could be a different one and the and for roughly three quarters of the season those two plots have absolutely nothing to do with each other and every scene with Miranda Richardson just feels like killing time until they can hurry up and get to something new yeah as much as I enjoy Miranda Richardson that when I first watched this because of course I watched it when it came on the air originally I wanted to, to like her storylines because I am such a fan of hers. And I, I did like some of the other actors peopling her storyline as well. But that disconnect really was a was part of why I actually stopped watching this first season while it was airing. I, and I was wrong. I was wrong. It's your, it, was, it, was your, <laughs> it was your fault, people like you. I did it. Yeah, personally, <laughs> just, just me, even though we never had... Never had a, a Nielsen box, but <laughs> watching it this time, I was because I sort of jumped around. It's been a, a busy week with Comic Con prep and everything, so I didn't get a chance to rewatch all of it. Anyways, I, I did uh, like being able to jump to the end of the season, see where they were going, and then that allowed me to to kind of stick with the more meandering and disconnected parts of her storyline earlier in the season. But that certainly is, is a flaw in this, in this short lived series. I think that, I mean, I don't know if they ever really fixed the Miranda Richards and stuff, like where that winds up going in the finale. I was, oh. I, I thought really, <laughs> I have a lot to say about that finale, mostly <laughs> because I've spent most of the last three years trying to convince myself that finale didn't actually happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and the thing that's extra frustrating about the finale, let's just start on that. All right. Yes. Let's talk about the finale. Is, I think, I think the penultimate episode is fantastic and, Frankly, I think I would have been fine with that as the finale. I think it would have been, and I think especially for the early cancellation, I think it would have been an appropriately gut-punching, horrible, in a good way ending. It absolutely no wayward sons where the terror where despite all of their best efforts the Kateb's terrorist plot succeeds and basically throws all of United States shipping into disarray because of the explosion at Galveston and it just ends with all of API shell shocked I and mean, shocked uh, Truxton Spangler just quietly smiling to himself in his office and then the very last shot is Will sitting there with his head in his hands in his darkened apartment totally defeated and it's just a gorgeous shot which I didn't realize at the time, but the episode was directed by Michael Slobis of Breaking Bad fame. It just looked so beautiful and so much about what the show originally came to be about, which is the psychological toll that this that the world of intelligence takes on the people in it. So that would have been great. The finale as it stood was not. And the finale was all the more frustrating because it was written, like, I talked praising Henry Brommel for redirecting the show. The finale was written and directed by Brommel, and it was such a colossal misfire. I, I do think it has some good stuff in it, and this is a, a, a good enough segue to get into the supporting cast, who we haven't really talked about. Actually, yes. we haven't talked about at all. 
Uh, supporting cast and supporting characters for that matter, because I love all the API employees uh, from oh the, uh, from God. the underlings to the uh, conspiratorial mofos at the top. Uh, I love the whole team uh, of Tanya, Grant, Miles, and their individual plot lines and mini plot lines. We actually get, I think, what's, what is one of the most cathartic moments of the whole show, which is Tanya what happens with Tanya in the finale, which was just, which was perfect and logical. And I would like to think that had the show continued, they would have stuck with that decision. Uh, and I, I, I think almost every plot point that, that revolves around the underlings is pretty much perfect. I, I would entirely agree with you. Will's team definitely, uh, again, that was the best recalibration the show, the show did when it got away from the bigger conspiracy stuff and it got to Will and his team making their decisions. That was when the show really shined. There's the fourth episode where the three of them are having a serious discussion about whether or not the government should assassinate who they should conduct a bombing to kill who they think is Kateb. There's the truth will out, the lie detector episode where all of them are have to submit to a polygraph. And then there's Miles and Tanya in the next episode have to go oversee an interrogation. There's There were some just fantastic plots around all of them. Grant being insecure about his job, Miles' destruction of his marriage, Tanya's ongoing substance abuse problems. They were all fantastic, but and, but, of course, the real credit on the supporting staff has to go to the superiors with the greatest names ever, Kale Ingram and Truxton Spangler, because they were just <laughs> the, they were the best performances on the show. Well, perhaps. But for me, I have a soft spot in my heart for Rubicon, if only because this is the show that introduced me to, Del- to Dallas Roberts. And yes. I'm sure I had seen him before, but this is the show where I learned his name. <laughs> and when he popped up on The Good Wife, I was like, oh, that guy's awesome. Yeah, no, it was also it was also great to see him this season on The Walking Dead. Yes, in an unfortunately bungled, at least writing wise, role for the most part. But you can listen to our thoughts on the Walking Dead podcast about that. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, I, I do think actually Grant is perhaps the trickiest of those roles because it's such an unlikable character, and and I think that performance is really great too. I'm not a huge fan of, of Tanya though. I think again the performance is really good, and I agree, Simon, wholeheartedly. That the way that they ended with her character in the finale was, it was so satisfying and it was absolutely correct. And I do agree that I really hope they would have stuck with that. And I liked the the sort of buddy cop maybe partnership they're setting up for a next season with Will and Miles. Um, but I just wanted to make sure I gave Dallas Roberts some specific love because I really enjoy that performance and, and that character. But shall we to Spengler and Ingram? Oh, oh yes, I, I have to specifically uh, hone in on, on Arliss Howard, who is the Jonathan Banks of Rubicon. Uh, no question higher, about that. Higher praise could not be given. No, and I, and I mean it in every sense. I, he's just such a badass, and and so in in such a low key way, it's been shocking to watch this season of True Blood and have him as like a cigar chomping, scenery chewing villain. I did not recognize him for like four episodes. Uh, this is just. Ah, he's so yeah, good in this. I know. I, what I love about Arliss Howard was just how quietly he played Kale Ingram and how you could see that this was a guy who, like, he was clearly a badass. As you said, he was a badass. He'd been involved in political assassinations in Beirut in the 1980s. He was black ops. But then you have these scenes where he's talking with his, like, 
he's openly gay and he's talking with his live-in boyfriend about dinner plans. There's He has dinner with Donald Bloom, the who Spangler's hired to follow Will around. And it's just a quiet, some almost intimate discussion the two of them are having. And then a few episodes later, after Will's killed Bloom, Kale shows up at his apartment, looks around, tells Will to go in the bathroom and close the door. He does so. And then you hear the power tools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, he, he, Really just one of the more fat one of the more fascinating characters on TV and certainly in recent years. And yeah, comparing him to Mike from Breaking Bad is a very apt comparison. Yeah. And then there's Michael Christopher as Truxton Spangler, who who actually does do the scenery chewing, uh, not uh, not Kale Ingram. And he it was so I can't think of a more dispiriting casting choice than when I than when he got that terribly thankless villain role on Smash. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! There was a lot of thanks needed for that role. He had to be there for uh, Angelica Houston to throw drinks in his face on every other episode. Yeah, and it got funnier every time, right? I know hey. it was. You could hear the laugh track. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's so good. And I, actually, I think that's another one of the bits of the finale that actually does work. I, that that last scene, as much as it is slightly ridiculous, I think Christopher sells it, and I, I think that. He was. I, I mean, I have no idea where they would have gone with that with the second season. It just seems so like innately show exploding. But I, I, I do think that, um, for instance, you mentioned the the polygraph episode, which is such a brilliant. I, I almost think it would have been better to do that earlier on, so that we uh, perhaps even in the second episode, because it's such a great device for getting to know how every single one of these characters reacts in a crisis. And that's another showcase episode for him. I just, I, I love the the performance and the character. Yeah, no, yeah, but and also prior, prior to this, I rewatched The Outsider, which is the one where he and Will go to DC. The speech he gives to the to the, the he's tie. there in the yes the committee where they're trying to get more funding for API, and he gives them the speech about the tie, and that's just that's just a top tier monologue right there. And Christopher nails it in every sense. Absolutely. And both of these guys are set up as, as potential villains. Of course, Ingram becomes somewhat of an ally. And then in the finale, it's basically revealed that he's one of the shadowy bad guys as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I, I will. We were talking about the conspiracy. I just have to chew out the fact that the one of my biggest problems with the finale, the scene where basically all of the um, Atlas McDowell executives are the hanger of doom. Yes, they're hanging and they're sitting around and it's it's and they're all basically deciding to kill him and it's supposed to be taken seriously but all I look is like it's the friggin' board of shadowy figures from Clone High. You can't mm. take this seriously. It's like the largest white room you've ever seen with one light around us. It's like it's so ridiculous. I mean, the visual it, visual is very nice except that it's absolutely absurd in a show that for the most part looked very you know grounded in its visuals yeah to, yeah. to, to make another comparison they're basically the guild of calamitous intent pretty uh, pretty much pretty much but uh yeah and to talk a little bit about the the conspiracy in general i, I it's it's especially dispiriting because i think except for that episode and and also i would say except for the pilot because the whole train crash to kill one dude thing is You'll notice there are very few references to the train crash after that. They they try the in the last that last scene, uh, and in Spengler all but like brushes his hand over and pay no attention to that detail yeah, from the pilot. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I think aside from those episodes, the nature and the design of the conspiracy is actually fairly believable, at least mm -hmm. in the sense that you know the motives are pretty basic. You know. 
money and power and it, yeah, and everything everything happens in a way that feels quite real and and also in a way that i think puts other shows in us that are set in a similar environment to shame <clears throat> homeland um and I, I think it's unfortunate that they kind of bungled that aspect to some degree because it it does feel it's one of the most i guess down to earth uh it goes to the top conspiracies i've seen set up yeah i'm a really big fan of occam's razor when it comes to conspiracies in shows like this, and I love, you know, like even just something like Die Hard too, right? I, I love when it comes to, down to something very simple, very relatable, very understandable, as opposed to a labyrinthine, you know, well, you needed to have followed the bad guys for episodes and episodes that there's some uh, oblique methodology or reasoning, you know, is something that you'll buy. I, you know, I really... I would absolutely agree, Simon. I really like the way that this conspiracy was handled. Though, I, for me, it was somewhat of a letdown that they I was waiting for him to jump off at the end or something. I don't know what I was expecting them to do, but I, I, I saw the, the end of The Sopranos and didn't think my cable had cut out. I, I saw the end of this and went back to make sure it hadn't ended early. No, God, I still I still remember my I and I just at the point I didn't we didn't know the show had been canceled, but I still remember watching the finale and after that last scene, my re- exact response was, "What? That's it? <laughs> wait, wait, what? Come on!" Well, and you know, and I, we shouldn't just harp on about this finale, but I'm going to do it a little more because did they not know they were being canceled? Because that's the only thing that makes sense. I can't believe they they set up that DVD. And then completely bungled it with with Miranda. You know, we we don't get to see that message. Yeah, I know. I mean, we get to, we get to see Miranda Richardson assassinated by Clay Davis, but that's about it. There's no and the whole and the whole killing off of Miranda Richardson felt to me like this was Bromel and company saying, "Okay, this guy introduced in the pilot. We dragged this out for a se- for the whole season. Nobody liked it. Let's just end it." And then, of course, in ending it, they also botched what had been one of the more interesting part of the show, Will's neighbor from across the hall, Andy, who he thought that he was gradually finding some comfort in and who seemed curiously interested, but also put off. And then it cuts to, and then the finale revealed, oh, yeah, she's a spy, too. And that was just so, so stupid. Oh, I yeah, just assumed I, I, when I was watching this the first time through, I just assumed she was. Yeah, I guess, you know, future memo for anyone doing a spy show, if you're going to have a plot line where you know, we have a character who might actually not be part of the plot and might not be part of the conspiracy. You want to leave it ambiguous for a while. If you want to do it a novel way, have her not be part of it at the end because no <laughs> one ever does that. Yeah. I, I, I just, I just, it's so, especially for a show that got after a while, so good at putting people. Well, I can't say it got really good at putting people together because I realized in also revisiting some episodes that I had completely forgotten everything involving Maggie and com- everything involving Ed Bloom. So I'd completely for- actually uh, Ed Bancroft. Sorry. I realized I completely forgot both of those characters had been on the show at all because when I look back on the show, all I remember is I remember Will and his team, Ingram and Spangler, and pretty much that's all I remember. Selective memory, I suppose. Well, but that's because they stand out, and that's because they're well written, they're well performed. And we talked earlier, you know, in our in our segment with Mo Ryan, talking about some of the highlights of the year for us, about the the pacing, the more deliberate pacing of shows that we've really appreciated this year. And it's nice to go back to Rubicon and see one of the places that that 
became more and more more mainstream. I think we're seeing uh, maybe this is a way to to go into the effects that this hardly watched show have had on other series. And I think that very deliberate pacing is something that we're seeing reflected now. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I talked about, I've been doing a lot of thinking about just the effects Rubicon has had. And really, you mentioned Homeland earlier. And really, Homeland is the most, I think Homeland owes a lot to Rubicon, not just because Henry Brommel was part of the, uh, he was one of the executive producers on Rubicon for the first, on, on Homeland, sorry, for the first two seasons. And you can see that I th- I've always thought Homeland sort of blends the the some of the slower paced elements of Rubicon and its idea of the toll that the intelligence work takes with sort of the more breakneck 24 element that uh, Howard Gordon and company brought to the table. But I think also so I think that uh, Homeland owes a lot to Rubicon. I think the Americans also owes a lot to Rubicon. It just in terms of the pacing, the psychological effect and the idea that you're spending time with these characters in their quieter moments while potentially major events of national importance are happening around them. Yeah, to, to reinforce that, that connection, Brommel, of course, wrote Q&A, which might be the best Homeland episode ever. Precisely, which is, again, which is uh, referencing the, the Truth Will Out, which was their absolutely fantastic uh, interrogation episode of Rubicon, that Q&A, uh, Q&A is full of that. And also there's the lie, there's the lie detector episode from season one of, Rubic- of Homeland, which is another terrific episode. Right. Um the I think well I, and I wonder why people didn't cotton on to Rubicon but did cotton on to Homeland and maybe it's about timing but I think it has more to do with the fact that there weren't I mean there isn't a an easy I mean and I, I it's it's a lazy thing to harp on I suppose but there is no will they won't they on Rubicon really I mean they well, kind of tease that a little bit with Maggie I guess but there also aren't any shiny happy people. Everybody is depressed or depressing. The most likable, easily likable character gets trained in the first episode. And so <laughs> you have a very withdrawn and, uh, and to, to some sense just, sense, just broken lead. And then you have the other main leads who are a very, again, withdrawn, miles, a bit of a prick, Grant, and the, the struggling with addiction, Tanya. I mean, those... All of the characters, I mean, this is sort of a requirement when you're going to have some sort of a conspiracy mystery where you can't know too much about the shady higher-ups. I mean, all of our central characters here are just kind of depressing to watch. So if you don't get intrigued by the mystery of it all and or just enjoy the, the cinematography and the the dedication to character, it, it's, it's understandable for me why people don't want to spend their hour you know, in a given week with, with this show, because it is kind of depressing. Yeah. I think also it it had the unfortunate fact that there weren't any big names associated with it at the time. I mean, obviously people know who James Badgedell is now more for things like Iron Man three. And I also feel bad that we didn't act. We didn't say a lot about James Badgedell when we're talking about the rest of the cast, because as Will Travers, he was really, really good on this, really good at playing the quietly intense. And he was one of those actors who you basically just spent a lot of time watching him think, and he made it a lot of fun to watch him think. Absolutely. I, you know, another aspect of the, uh, I would say the other big aspect of the show that got totally walked back from is, probably the worst line in the pilot you can probably guess what it is before i say it why is he like that try 9-11 oh my wife and kid oh god damn it simon i i blocked that out why would you make me remember that again (laughs) well the show also blocked it out i mean there's never 
I don't recall any references to any of that afterwards. I feel like it informed our understanding of the character, though. I was more willing to accept this version of him or who he was because I knew that about him. And I actually liked that they set that up but then didn't dwell on it because I felt much more realistic. See, I, I would be fine with him just being depressed and anxious and hard to be around because he has a terrible job. I don't really need the, the tragic baggage. Yeah. Speaking about his terrible job, that was another thing I always really liked about the show. It never sought to glamorize the spy lifestyle. I mean, there's people are they're working in an ugly, in an ugly building in in New York City. It's just like one of the most depressing office buildings you could think of to work in. Fluorescent and lights it, everywhere. Yeah, fluorescent lights, cheap furniture, uh, terrible views out of the windows. Just weird trinkets on the tables. Precisely, which may or may not have held uh, tracking devices. Right. Well, we are almost out of time. How about favorite episodes? Well, I think Les has already touched on the real highlights. I think The Outsider might be the best episode. That's, but there's, uh, there's, there's, there's three or four possibilities, but I, I think the, the polygraph episode also is fantastic. Basically any episode that's not, the I feel like the bookends kind of let the show down, but but most of what happens in between is is pretty damn solid. I agree. Uh, yeah, I would say the the outsiders an easy choice, but I would also say that um, a good day's work, the eleventh episode, which is the one where Will fights off Bloom in his apartment and winds up killing him. I think that's got some great moments in it, but. It's it's a show that, again, uh, there's a lot in it that doesn't hold together, but it has a lot of individual moments and scenes that I remember. And those just, even now, three years later, just continue to knock it out of the park. Well, I guess, I'm just going to defend the pilot, I guess, a little bit. It sounds like it worked a lot better for me than it did for you guys. I, I felt like it was an interesting pilot. I mean, all pilots have issues. Almost all pilots have issues, that is. And and there are a couple there, but for the most part, I thought it was really effective. I mean, the the series opens with he's always going to be to me Quentin Travers from Buffy uh killing himself and it's a really stark image and uh i think it does a lot to really get the story going and get your get you invested in in the mystery of it all and i do think i mean that as as potentially hackneyed as or unbelievable as the train assassination is it is a really incredibly strong visual and i i mean i remember watching that when it aired when the train just kind of veers off to the other track it was really effective for me so i guess i like the pilot more than you guys do um, each of the episodes that you guys have mentioned, I think, are fantastic. I actually, I think it's a pretty consistent series of episodes. The pilot, we've talked about the finale plenty and how how that gets some things wrong, but in general, most, you know, because you have such such solid performances throughout the cast, and you have such interesting things happening in general you know, pretty much throughout the different storylines with the obvious exception of the Miranda Richardson storyline. Um, I, I do think it's actually a really consistent show week in and week out. And to get to final thoughts here, though I'm sure Simon, you'll want to talk about the theme song and the credits, but to get to final thoughts here, this needs to come out on DVD. Come on guys. <laughs> Brilliant, but canceled. Make, make a box set for me. It's built for DVD. Yeah. For and sure. I will and actually, this is something uh, that happened recently. It isn't available on DVD, but the whole series is available on Amazon Instant. So for Amazon Prime members, can stream the whole thing live. So episodes are at, – there at least haven't gone into yeah. 
a, they haven't gone into a black hole. It but is again, possible to yeah to catch. Yeah, up. I do wish I do wish the show was more readily available, and it's I I completely agree. I do agree with you on the consistency, especially because it was cons- <laughs> it was consistent in its inconsistent parts as well. I would say. Mm-hmm. So the performances were always consistent, but and the problems were always consistent. Yeah, I think that's fair. Two quick last thoughts. Yes, the intro and theme music are fantastic. And as long as we're drawing comparisons between the two shows, the exact opposite of the Homeland intro <laughs> in that it's short and gets to the point and is elegantly constructed and doesn't make me want to claw my eyes out every time. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I keep wondering when Showtime's going to get the memo on that. But anyway... We're- yeah, and speaking of memos for Showtime, one final thing, I've been banging the drum for this basically on Twitter for about two years, and I think that Homeland Season 3 should do it. They're expanding, they seem to be expanding the intelligence community. For God's sakes, bring over Christopher Evan Welch, Lauren Hodges, and Dallas Roberts to Homeland. Make them Carrie's new team. I think that would be fantastic. Oh, that would be so fun. <laughs> I, mean, I would be totally pay- into that. Same characters or new characters? Uh Heck, um, with the occasional reference. It, it, I mean, come on, after what happened in the season two finale of Homeland, it seems true. entirely reasonable to me that the CIA would need to hire a bunch of outside contractors. I mean, heck, bring, o- bring over uh, Kale Ingram and Trex and Spangler as well. I would pay good money to watch Mandy Patankin and Arliss Howard just go to town for an hour. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, final, final thought. Is this the show that started Michael Gaston on doing the Michael Gaston role? Hmm. Perhaps because I I swear I've seen him do that role in three or four shows now. Who's who's my who's Michael Gaston on this He's show the, again? The guy who plays Bloom. He Bloom? also did the, he also did the same role basically on Terriers. Yeah. Oh yes. This then this is a sign that I've just I need to rewatch the entire series again because <laughs> I sampled a few things and it's just reminding me how good this show was and how it really does deserve more credit than I think it gets. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Les, so much for coming on. Where can our listeners find you online? Oh, well, you can find me on you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash l e s i s m o r e nine letter o nine. That's twitter.com slash less is more nine o nine. You can find my writing at avclub.com, where I'm currently speaking of classic shows. I'm currently working through a series long watch of Wonderfalls, and you can also find me at thiswastv.com. Great. And thank you once again, Les, for coming on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse.